So this is sulfate of potash. That's what we use. Um, we follow the recommendations. When you get your soil test, you want to be aiming for the, the top end of the scale. They have a range. Um, they might recommend between 5 to 7.5% of your CEC to be um, potassium. Try to push it up to the 7% rather than you know staying down at the 5 because um, sweet potato like it. They'll use it all. And then we feed an additional uh, 2 to 250 pounds per acre through the drip system after they've been planted, and it, it makes a difference, definitely makes a difference. You can see these sweet potato here. You see this thin, small ones compared with the fat ones. The thin ones are what they turn out like without the potassium, and it can make a difference of double the, the yield if you feed the potassium. So potassium is very, very expensive, um, but it repays many times over if you, if you use it. Now, if you leave the sweet potato in the ground long enough, they get big. But here's the thing that happens. They get, they're long and big. When you feed the potassium, they're short and, and fat. And people, customers like them short and fat. So if they're long and fat, they kind of, you know, not, not so... Yes. We, 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 if the soil recommendations say it needs it, we put everything that the soil recommendation says. And then in addition to that, well, the first six weeks is the vegetative growth stage. So we don't give it to them during that stage. We give the, a little bit of nitrogen to them and a little bit of the kelp. And um, then once they've put on some you know, nice tops, um, which they will have by six weeks' time, then we start feeding a little bit every week to them of the potassium sulfate through, through the rest of their life. It's actually uh, interesting that the majority of their growth happens in the last month you know, a month before harvest, you, you dig around and, and have a look at them and they're small and you start worrying that they're not going to get big enough. But in that last month, they just, they fatten up. It's amazing. Um, the other thing is giving them adequate water. And it's going to vary depending on your soil type. Um, let me just mention about the water and then I'll come to you. The, the water, um, initially, I followed recommendations from somebody who uh, was growing them in a, uh, in an environment they got a bit of rain and, and um, the ground moisture content was higher. And so I watered and he said, be careful, don't give them too much water. And, and he told me how much to give them. So the first year I did that and they ended up being longer and thinner because they go deeper to get the moisture. Whereas if you give them enough moisture, um, they don't have to go as deep and they will, you know, they'll be shorter and, and fatter. So, but you don't want them to be too saturated with water. Um, there's, there's other issues that come from that as well. They won't actually get big if they, if they have too much water. So you've got to have the right moisture. Yes, brother. Not, it's not a chemical fertilizer as such. I guess technically it is, but it's a natural, it's OMRI listed, it's, it's not harmful, it's not in a, you know, a, a um, toxic level. I believe so. It comes from the, the the product that we use comes from Utah, from the Salt Lakes somewhere there. Um, it's fifty percent. Sorry. Yes, you can get it in a in a uh, for broadcasting. You want to get a granular. A um, they call it standard fines. It's like sand, and it, it broadcasts nicely from a spreader. Um, for the drip tape, you, you can get the, what do they call it, um, ultra fine or something like that, and it's solution grade. 
and it's a white powder. It's it's um, very very uh, small particle size. So weeding is the next thing you're going to deal with. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you what we do, and you're going to have to adapt to your soil type. But um, we have heavy clay soil and if you have heavy clay soil it holds the moisture a lot longer and so we give them about three hours on the drip tape now it depends on the spacing and rating of your drip tape and your your you know your supply line if it's giving volume and so forth as far as so you want to monitor don't go by you know time you want to be continually monitoring and feeling the moisture and making sure they're getting adequate moisture uh, we, we do about a three-hour watering three times a week. And, um, and we use drip tape that has eight-inch spacing. Now, if you use drip tape that has 12-inch spacing, you probably need to do about four and a half hours in our clay type of soil. If you're in sandy soil, um, in Livingston, California, where it's the sweet potato capital, they have a, it almost looks like beach sand. They give their sweet potatoes six hours a day, every day because it just, it just goes straight through. Um, <clears throat> so um, make, just make sure that it doesn't dry out and it stays you know, moist enough that they're not going to go deep looking for, for water. First year, you're going to experiment and you'll learn from it. Um, so you might make some mistakes the first year, but they're very, very hardy plants. You can give them, you know I told you that the first water is the most important water they get. If you didn't water them for the rest of the summer, they will stay alive and they'll grow a little bit and you might even think that they're going to produce something. You probably dig them up and there might not be hardly anything there. But it's amazing, they are very, very hardy. They're not going to show you by their leaves that they need water. Most other plants will start wilting and drooping. They have to be almost completely dried out before the leaves start looking like they're drooping. Um, so don't use the, the, the foliage as an indicator of water needs. Um, this little video, we, we first started, everything was hand weeded. Um, this mechanical weeder just uses some shovels on a toolbar and goes in between the rows. And if the, if the ground is flat enough, it works really well because you can get the dirt piling up on top. Then um, after the, our students were grumbling and complaining about having to bend over and weed, um, one of them said, come on, let's, let's, let's make a, uh, a thing we can lie down on and weed. And, and finally he twisted my arm because I got tired of the complaining. And so we basically modified the, the, the transplanter so that they could... Um, uh, lie down and weed. And it actually increased our efficiency from what used to take us two weeks by hand. Um, we got done in, the, in about three days. So I was grateful. And they were much happier because they were... The, the thing with young people is they don't like to be more than a, a hand reach apart from each other. <laughs> and um, so when they're in their rows, some of them are faster than others. But the fast ones... They wait for the slow ones because they don't want to be separated. So you slow the whole process down to the slowest one, whereas with this, the tractor sets the pace. They all work at the same speed, and, um, and they're chatting away, and they've got a, a weeder in both hands, and, and it, it's, it's much better. So um, you can see on this uh, particular terrace there, you can see in front of the tractor the weeds are quite thick. We, don't, we try to get to them before they get to this stage, but even if they get to this stage, you know, 
you can go along and, and you can see behind there the weeds have been knocked back. Once the uh, sweet potato put on their, their vines, they basically smother the weeds down. There'll be a few weeds that'll go through, grow through, but we'll walk through and just pull the tall ones out and uh, try to stop them from growing and getting you know to seed. So there's a sweet potato field. You won't see any weeds in there. We, we go through and thoroughly weed them um, and it... Um, it actually looks really beautiful when it's um, when you've got all that green, especially in brown California. <laughs> but um, we we grow four to five acres typically. We this last year we did three, and um, it was smaller for various reasons why we didn't grow as much. But um, we've got contour, which is a little bit challenging. In fact, if it's once you get beyond just a gentle slope. The amount of labor involved is probably nearly four times as much. So if you're trying to grow on a hill, a lot of it's manual. You, you eliminate the tractor uh, for some of the um, processes. So here we are, it's harvest time. We get our elementary kids involved and try to include them in whatever they, they can contribute. So we first remove the drip tape. And we, I've tried several different harvest uh, methods and... I've, because of our soil, we have a lot of stones in our soil and we have a variation of moisture content. So this tool that you can see there, um, it's actually a drip tape lifter. I just mounted that on a toolbar as well. And um, it goes underneath and pushes them up to the surface and then you just grab the vines and pick them up and separate them and it works really well. Um, you have some coulters in front and a coulter, if you don't know what a coulter is, the kids call it a, a pizza cutter. It's a, just a giant wheel, you know, I think it's 26 inches, the one that we use. I did build this machine here as a, a potato um, harvester, and I used it one season, but I, I stopped using it, and David Obermiller's got it down at uh, Fresno Adventist Academy now. But um, our soil conditions are so varying because of the slopes, and in this one big field we've got five springs, and, and so... Um, what I found was that it would get underneath and as you can see it did a really nice job in some areas. Some areas there were so many rocks, the rocks, the stones would fall between the, the, the bars and jam up the wheels that were feeding the belt over and, and you'd have to stop and free it up and keep going. And uh, then when we get into uh, areas where the moisture content was too high, the dirt would just come over in a sheet. It wouldn't shake any of it loose and it would dump off the back. And sometimes it would dump a big pile of it. And so instead of being easy to get them out, you'd end up with um, like this big pile and a whole bunch of them uh, buried in there and it was more work to get them out. So I reverted back to just using the um, drip tape lifters and... It's still labor-intensive for us. We don't have very big fields. We don't have much growing area for it. Um, so we have to do what we can. We can't use the type of harvester that they use commercially. Um, this is the one here without the coulters on that um, works sufficient. But in, in the commercial um, growing, they'll use a big trailerized unit. In fact, this is kind of a smaller one compared with some of them. Some of them are as big as a semi-truck trailer. And they'll have all the crates there. They have a team of people lined up, and the um, the digger will go underneath and take them up, shake the sand off, and then they have a team there sorting them, grading them, sizing them, and putting them into the appropriate bins. And um, then, of course, the forklift takes them off there, and they can do it very, very efficiently and without a lot of backbreaking work. 
But um, this is what you're aiming for with your plant. If you get four nice big sweet potato, you're doing really well. They don't always work out that way. But um, when you feed the potassium, it's more likely that you'll end up with that. Um, I think we're doing well if we average, on a, on a larger scale, if we average about two pounds per plant, but I think it's possible to get better than that. Um, I'm still trying to, to get, adjust to get the optimum yield. Um, you don't want them to be too big for marketing because when they get too big, uh, the customers don't want them. We get paid a premium price because ours tastes better than any that you can buy in the supermarkets. And so we get $1.50 a pound for them and um, wholesale, and then they sell them for about two thirty-nine a pound. So if they're too big, someone buys a potato this, you know, this size, they're paying over $10 for it. So you don't want to get them too big. Not too many customers are willing to do that. So um, probably about a two, two pound sweet potato is as big as you want to go. Um, these, this particular variety is a Japanese one. It's got a purple skin and a white flesh. We've found that the three varieties that are common, at least in our uh, western part of the uh, country, um, there's the, the, what people call yams. And I get asked this question all the time, so I'll throw it out there. Um, people say, what's the difference between yams and sweet potato? There is no difference. They're all sweet potato. In fact, they're not even yams. What they call yams are not yams. If you look it up, a yam is a South American root that's a really nice-tasting root. I have never seen it for sale here. We have them in New Zealand. But um, when they introduced the orange-fleshed sweet potato in the United States, they wanted to differentiate it from the other sweet potato, so as a marketing name, they called it a yam. But legally, they actually the boxes actually have to say sweet potato slash yams. So they're, they're all sweet potato. Now the second variety that we, we grow mainly is a uh, henna, is the supermarket name. The plant varieties that you buy are going to have different names than the super, supermarket names. Garnets, jewels are fairly common for the orange-fleshed ones, but the type of plants that will produce an, an orange flesh, there's quite a number of them, and they keep changing because as uh, disease issues come up, they keep developing disease-resistant varieties, and so they change. So garnets are, are well and truly past. The one now that replaces a garnet is called a Diane. Um, and same thing with jewels. We, we grow one that's called a uh, Covington, and, and that's what is marketed as a jewel. The customers get used to a, a, a name, and the, and the supermarkets don't want to change the name, so they keep the same name because the, the, the replacement varieties look the same. And for the um, white-fleshed ones, we, we grow a variety that's called... We just changed to one called Bonita. Um, and uh, we used to grow one called O. Henry, but the Bonita is a much better one. Uh, yes. Uh, definitely there's a, ch a difference in taste and texture as well. The orange-fleshed ones are, are, are very sweet, and they're, they're a softer uh, texture. The Japanese... They're white, they're sweet, but they're more of a, a drier, um, maybe a little denser um, texture. And I like the Japanese more than I like the orange flesh. But if you grew up eating the orange fleshed ones, you probably like them more. We're, we're, we're actually growing a New Zealand variety now <clears throat> that um, is similar to a Japanese, but it's got a pink skin. 
and it's much nicer than the, the Japanese variety. And this year will be the first year I'll sell them. Um, and I, I don't know, it's amazing when you bake them, the sugar just flows out of them and caramelizes on the tray that you're baking them in. Um, uh, we call it a, a Northern Rose in New Zealand. I don't know what I'm, name I'm going to put on it yet for, for over here, but um, it's, um, it was developed in New Zealand, and it, I like the, the, the growing habit of it. It's, it has shorter vines, and so when you're harvesting, you don't... Ha- the, these other varieties, they grow nine-foot-long vines, and they cross several rows, and sometimes if they don't get cut properly, they can tangle and... You, can, you have to stop and you know, make sure that they're not bunching up. So uh, with this other variety, they, have, you know, they only grow about this long. So if they were in the middle and they didn't get cut, they'd kind of get brushed past, and they're, they're just nicer to work with. Uh, I think I saw another. Yes. We harvest in October. We start October, and we, it pretty much takes us a month to, to harvest them. Uh, in a small garden? Yeah, just um, uh, probably come in from the sides if you've got a broad fork or just a regular fork, come in from the sides and, and dig in and, and lift up and just gradually come in because you don't want, just like regular potatoes, you don't want to stab them. Um, but once you loosen the soil up, you can usually grab the vine and if they're big, they've got a bigger attachment and they're more likely to hang on. If they're small, they can you know, break off when you pull the vine. So loosen the soil, lift the vine and then you know, separate them from that. You can see this bunch here. I taught a class to a, a gardening class for our local church, and um, they were really excited when they harvested and had these big, nice bunches of, of sweet potato. So uh, when we, after we've got them up a little bit in the ground, then we pick them up, and we typically will have um, half a dozen kids from the academy, and they just go along and pick them up and put them into little... Um, tubs and then dump them into a crate and then we pick them up with the forks put the crates on the trailer and take them through to the um, shed and we've harvested probably um, the most I think was about 80 of those bins and um, I'm not sure of the exact weight of the bins I was told when we bought them that they would hold a thousand pounds I've never actually put them on a scale and weighed them but um, I did sell a whole crate to um, David Overmill at Fresno Academy, and they, as they sold, they recorded how much they sold, and when they finished selling them, he told me they sold 700 pounds. Um, but they do, when you fill the, the um, crate and you store them, they actually continue to breathe and sweat. So you'll see the level going down, a little bit, they can lose 20% of their weight from just, you know, moisture evaporation. So I haven't noticed them get sweeter, but there will be a bit of a difference when you cure them. And I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit now about the curing process. Um, we just have an old metal um, shed there, and um, we put a furnace inside there. <coughs> they need to be stored above 55 degrees. They're a tropical plant. They don't like cold. If they were stored in the 40s, they would probably, after a month, be starting to go very soft and rotten. So um, you want to keep them above 55. The ground temperature is actually um, 55 to 57 degrees. Um, So if you have a root cellar or 
Maybe you could even bury a shipping container or something under the ground and put them inside and, and make sure you've got some air circulation. But keeping them above 55 degrees is important. They will last a long time. Commercially, they store them for up to a year and they keep the humidity up. Uh, I think 70 or 80% humidity and, um, and they store them you know, that long. And as long as they're at that temperature, they're not going to sprout. But if they get up into the upper 60s, into the 70s, they will start sprouting over a period of time. So we put them in the shed here. We don't have the ability to cool the shed. We only have the ability to warm it up. So I set the uh, furnace at 57 degrees. And at night, when the temperatures drop into the 40s, then it turns on and warms up the shed and keeps it at that minimum temperature. But in the springtime, once we get past March um, and the days are in the 70s, uh, our crates that are stacked inside there, when I take a top one off and I look inside, I can see them after, probably by April, they're all starting to, especially the top ones are sprouting. Um, so, but now we're, we're pretty much sold out before March, so we don't have issues with that. But we put them in the shed there, and um, to cure them, they need to be at about 85, 90 degrees for three days with about a 90% humidity, ideally. Um, the, the floor of our shed, this happened by, I was going to say by accident, but I think it was Providence. Um, when they poured the concrete, um, I noticed when we, um, I'm not sure, maybe it was before we got the roof on the shed or something, I noticed that the, the floor sloped to the middle and so we, it could hold a, an inch and a half or so of water in the middle of the, of the shed without it running off. So to cure them, I just flood the, the floor of the shed and it holds that water, turn the temperature up and it's got humidity and that water's evaporating and um, three days is all it takes to cure them at that temperature. Um, if you don't cure them, they won't last as long. They'll go rotten sooner. But if you do cure them, they will, um, they will be... What does curing do? It changes them inside somehow. It, it actually, if you left them at that temperature, so three days and cutting them off, if you left them for maybe over a week, maybe 10 days to two weeks, they would be sprouting. So somehow inside they are changing their structure to start producing sprouts, but you cut it off and then bring it down to the 50, 55 to 60 degree range and they're not going to sprout at that temperature, but it changes them. And if there's cuts on them, it heals the cuts, it kind of just dries them and they, they kind of seal off. Um, and so that's really beneficial because you will cut some as you're you know, harvesting. Yes? Yeah, by putting the water on the floor, the, uh, the heat makes that, that water evaporate and it makes the humidity higher. So the humidity helps them in the process of wanting to, um, uh, to sprout. Yes, I see a hand here and, and then as soon as you can after getting them out of the ground. I've, because it takes us a month to harvest, from the first ones to when they get um, cured, it's a month. You know, they're stored there. Um, they can wait, yes. And leave them in the crates, yeah. They, you can see the crates have gaps between the boards, and so air flows through them. It doesn't make any difference where they are because the, the heat is uniform inside. No. Well, 
if you saw the picture of the front of the shed, it's got a sliding door. There's some gaps. Um, it probably gets some natural airflow. The furnace, you know, it, it, um, it blows air. So there's, there is a bit of air movement. But I think that the main thing is that the, it stays evenly um, heated. I don't think you want an airtight um, situation. That might create some issues too. How to cure it? Okay. Um, since you are into gardening, you won't mind some dirt inside the house. <laughs> so I would suggest go into your bathroom and um, if you've got maybe a couple of boxes of them, or I don't know what, what volume you're going to grow, but if you can stack them in your, in your, in your um, bathroom and then take your, your bathtub or some buckets or whatever of water uh, or turn the tap on so that it's dripping and um, so that that puts humidity and then take a heater inside there, close the door and put a little um, thermometer so you can know what the temperature is and adjust your heater so it gets in that 85-90 and just leave it for the three days and it'll be fine. And you can shower in there too, that'll add to the humidity. <laughs> so. Yes, after that, then you, you store them at 55 degrees to 60 degrees. Now, if you don't have a place to do that, my, what my wife does, when I bring some home to her, and she doesn't want to use them right away, she'll put them underneath the um, kitchen sink, the cupboards there, and with the running water through the sink, it kind of cools. It's a little bit cooler there than other places of the house. So they seem to sit in there for a good month without any sprouting or issues. Um, if your garage is, if the temperature stays above 55, it should be fine. But if your garage is getting down into the 40s, they will probably go bad. Maybe not immediately, but they will go bad after a, you know, a month, probably. But if they're kept at the right temperature, they will last for, um, well, if you can keep them in that temperature range, they'll last a year. But you have to have cooling in the summer because the heat will make them sprout. But even after they sprout, you can still eat them, but they're taking some of the nutrients out of there to, to put into the sprouts. Um, I tell you what, let me just... F I don't know what the time is. I haven't been watching the time. It is uh, 11.48. We're supposed to finish. Let me just finish the slide. We'll close. Anyone wants to go, they can go, and I'll be happy to answer questions. Uh, so what we do then, we wash them, and very simple, farmers have to improvise and cut costs. We just took a, an old iron bathtub, put it on legs. We washed them in the bathtub. And then I bought a, um, off Craigslist a, uh, it was a conveyor dryer from a print shop. For, for They took screen printed t-shirts and put them through. I paid $200 for this conveyor. Put some forced air through there. They come out from that conveyor onto a table. They're not fully dry when they get there. So we mounted a fan above that blows some air down, and um, I've got a rotary table there, a collection table. And then from there, we just pack them into the boxes, 30-pound boxes, <clears throat> and, um, and then stack them on a pallet, and then um, take them from there and deliver them to the uh, stores. We have one main store that buys most of what we grow. We don't try to sell them to too many other stores. Um, because their, their volume is not high enough and we sell out soon enough that it just we, we're able to keep up with the pace of this one store. We do have another store that we supply that's really close to them, um, but if we wanted to, to sell further, we could and we'd run out much sooner. So 
Um, but then we'd have to have more workers and shifts, you know, going on to wash and pack them. So we just go at a pace that works well for us. So let's have a word of prayer and then um, I'll stay by for any questions. Loving Father in heaven, thank you for giving, this, giving us this amazing uh, plant, the sweet potato and the nutrition that comes from it. Thank you that it has really amazing um, health benefits to us. Um, we look around us and, and we have people close to us that are suffering from terrible diseases, cancer and all kinds of things. And Lord, we want to do everything we can to help them with natural means that you ordained um, to help them um, heal. So Father, as we grow, we don't want to be just growing thinking about dollars. We want to be growing thinking about the benefits to humanity and, and how we continu- can continue the ministry of Jesus through the f- healing foods that we grow. So please, Lord, give us the opportunities to witness and, and to um, use our farms and gardens to glorify you. And ultimately, Lord, that there will be souls in the kingdom as a result of this work. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.